spoke to my heart and got me prepared, reminded how I forever stand in the grace of God. And we all do. So, good evening. So tonight, before I even say anything, I want you to go, want to go right to our text. So why don't you guys just stand with me? I'm going to title this message, Guard What is Precious, and hopefully you'll see why as we get into this message. So join with me as I read in the book of Exodus, chapter 31. I'm going to read verses 12 to 18, closing this chapter. And this is what the word of the Lord says. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on a seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. <clears throat> Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, Lord, well, first we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, who is the true word. We thank you that you've adopted us, that you call us by name. Our names were written in your book before creation even was. And now here we are this Sunday evening in this sanctuary that you provided for us to give you the worship that you deserve. So I pray that you would receive it as an aroma that is sweet unto you. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So tonight, as you can see, I have the wonderful and challenging task again of preaching on a passage, passage that upholds the Sabbath. As you know, when we were in chapter 20, I preached on the commandment that had to do with the Sabbath as well. But <clears throat> this time, I can, I can assure you that in studying this, it didn't get any easier. Okay, It was a blessing, but it's tough trying to understand this for whatever reason. But I was pleased to kind of immediately see something that stood out as far as application, what I thought really, really spoke to me, and it's kind of in the title, and we'll look at that and we'll get to it towards the end. But with that being said, <clears throat> I still found myself compelled to understand the heart behind God's strict rules concerning this commandment. You know, the Sabbath is one of those commands and concepts that has been, it still is, and will continue to be the subject of much debate, disagreement, and confusion. And the question that always comes up is, is the Sabbath for today for the New Testament church? Or maybe, again, and we addressed this last time, is the principle behind it still for today for the New Testament church? And when pastors 
and scholars and theologians answer those questions, we have to ask ourselves, are their answers consistent and logical? That is, are they giving good exegesis by good, uh, utilizing good principles of interpretation? And though many of them do do that, there still seems to be much disagreement. Moreover, if it is for today, how should it be kept? Now, these are all good and important questions. So let me just say that I believe that there is a lot more to this concept than the church has taught maybe the past century or so. And because it is in God's word, it is on us to take it serious and try our best in our context to study it and understand it, knowing and trusting that the Spirit will do his job and reveal what he wants to reveal to us. We have to just trust in that. It's God's job to teach us and give us the understanding. So I'll gladly yield to him. But even amongst those who disagree about whether or not it is for today, it's interesting to see that they all seem to hold the Lord's Day very high. So maybe even in their disagreements, they're actually not that far apart. So if we look at the Sabbath, the Sabbath comes up all over the Bible. We see it in the beginning at creation. We see it again with Israel before the Mosaic Covenant. We see it, I believe, in chapter 16 of Exodus when he provided manna for them. We see it now after the Mosaic Covenant. We also see it as we go through the Bible. We see it in the prophets' writings. Isaiah has some good stuff on it. We see it in the New Testament, in the Gospels in particular, especially when we see it, Jesus Christ, who was Lord of the Sabbath, seems to always be apparently breaking it, though we know he didn't. We see it in the epistles with the Apostle Paul, even though he was the apostle to the Gentile, because his heart was still for his brethren, he loved them, he always made it a point on the Sabbath to go and reason with the Jews as well. And then we see it in Hebrews, of course, gives us much light in understanding it. And then we arguably see it in Revelation. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and that's all it really says. So there's some things we have to do. There's some interpretation to see what that means. That's why I said arguably we see it in Revelation. So again, what is the deal with the Sabbath, and why was it, or, it, or is it still important? Why was the penalty for breaking it so severe? These are questions that maybe you guys can think of, that we should be thinking of, that might be helpful as we're going through it. I'm not going to answer all of them. Okay, I can't. There's only so much I can address in a sermon. But many of you guys know that I'm in seminary studying at a very slow pace, I might add. I can only do what I can do with the time that I have. But I chose the particular seminary that I go to because it was a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary. And by both conviction, I guess we can say, and persuasion, I believe that the Reformed Baptists of the 15 and 1600s and continuing on to our day actually have the best understanding of the scriptures, the likes of Charles Spurgeon, right? We think of Alistair Begg is a particular Baptist. We think of Vody Bauckham. These are guys that I really like. I think they're good theologians, okay? I believe they have the best understanding of the scriptures, what the scriptures teach us about God, Christ, mankind, the church, the world, etc. I think they just really understand it. 
I believe their understanding of the nature of the law and the gospel are correct as well. So that's why I found myself drawn to the seminary on top of the fact that it is so reasonably priced. Now, as far as the principle behind the Sabbath is concerned, which is leaving six days out of seven for work and one day off for rest and worship, there's actually no difference in understanding among other confessional churches, such as the Presbyterians, you think of R.C. Sproul, we quote a lot, or Sinclair Ferguson, they're Presbyterians, or maybe the Dutch Reformed, I believe Joel Beek is a Dutch Reformed pastor, okay, the, the Baptists, like I just mentioned, and the Reformed Congregationalists, you think of John Owen, his name comes up, they all have the same understanding of the Sabbath and the principle that they believe still is in effect today. And the reason why that is, is that they believe in the perpetuity of the moral law, which they believe is the Ten Commandments, and the Fourth Commandment addresses this, and the Fourth Commandment is part of the Ten Commandments, therefore, that's why they believe it. Now, they all believe that by positive law, it was changed from Saturday to Sunday, and many are, and many are not satisfied with their conclusions. Yet again, within the realm of good, sound theology... There is great charity amongst those who disagree, but again, like I just mentioned, there is actually great unity in how they practically live out this day, including the Calvinistic Baptists like Steve Lawson and R.C. Sproul and these other guys that we like that are actually not confessional. So let me first mention some things that I believe are true and that may be helpful in our understanding. I believe it's helpful in my own understanding, and I have not arrived yet. I'm still... A lot of studying that I have to do on this. But number one, up to this point in the Bible, we see that God refers back to creation when the Sabbath is talked about. So the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, just like marriage is a creation ordinance. It has its its roots right in the beginning. Secondly, and I think this is important, Adam and Eve though they were created good and perfect or complete, were not in a glorified state when they they were created. Some people think that they were because there was no sin and everything was perfect. They weren't in a glorified state. They were created what we would call mutable. That is, they were able to change from their initial created state to another state. They were not created with eternal life either, but they had to earn it by obedience. This is the covenant of works that we see very, very clearly, I believe, in Scripture. So this leads to the understanding that there must have been what theologians call a probationary period for Adam and Eve, with Adam acting as the federal head of all humanity. We've talked about that term before. I think it's an important term to understand the whole of the Bible. This means that Adam represents all of his posterity. And the result of his probation would be all in him would either live or die, be perfect or imperfect, righteous or unrighteous. And if someone disagrees with this, then they have to come up with a logical and biblical answer to say otherwise. Romans 5 wouldn't exist if Adam and Eve were successful in this probationary period. There would be really no Bible at all. There would be no Son of Man coming to earth as he did if Adam and Eve 
were successful in this probationary period. There'd be no need for the second Adam if the first Adam did what he was supposed to do, which is perfectly obey. Next, number three, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This is something that we learn in the New Testament. And because we are a New Testament church, we need to look at Scripture through the lens of the whole Bible, the New Testament, because we believe in progressive revelation. So the Sabbath was made for man, Scripture tells us. But I'm going to say this, that the Sabbath was made for man, not for Israel. There was no Israel at creation, but only mankind. And when Israel becomes a covenant people, he refers back to creation as something that predates them as a people. And then fourth, the garden was the first temple slash tabernacle. The temple was where God dwelled in a very real way. And though God is everywhere, we know that, he manifested himself in a very real way in the temple and tabernacle. And if you look at the language of the garden, there's the language that is very, very similar. There were strict rules. And as a result of it, people would die if they didn't follow rules. Jesus met with Adam and Eve in this particular place, the garden, right? He had a fellowship with them. If he met with them, it means he wasn't with them all the time. The garden was a unique place in Eden in this perfect world. Richard Barcelos makes an interesting observation. He says, the first temple was the Garden of Eden, the first high mountain of the earth where God dwelled with Adam and Eve. And we know that a river flowed out of the garden, so rivers flowed downward, not upward. The Creator's Sabbath comes after he made the earth. It comes after he completed the crafting of his temple. So the temple was made first, which was for worship, and then the Sabbath comes afterwards. And what he is getting at is God sets everything up in order for man to worship him the way he wants to worship him. He first created everything for his jewel, right? Adam and Eve came last after the whole creation was done. Everything was set in order for them. And in reading Barcelos as one of my own resources, he believes that understanding the Creator's Sabbath is foundational in understanding the whole of God's Word. Is this true? I'll let you guys decide. What I do know might be helpful is we all believe that Genesis is foundational to understanding the whole of God's Word. We have to. That is the beginning. Everything builds off that, right? So the Creator's Sabbath is found in the beginning of the book. And I'm quoting William Dumbrell. He argues that the end of the Bible is the beginning of the Bible brought to its intended goal. He argues that the end is actually better than the beginning. And as you guys know, we were in Revelation a few years ago, and I think it would be hard for us to argue with that conclusion. We see what happens in Revelation. We see and we learn of the ultimate victory of the second Adam, who is Christ, over the enemy of sin, the enemy of sin and the devil. T. Desmond Alexander says, the very strong links between Genesis 1 to 3, the first three chapters of the Bible, and Revelation 20 to 22, the last three chapters of the Bible, 
suggests that these passages frame the entire biblical meta-story. And quote, as a matter of fact, if we don't have our foundation in Genesis, it's going to be much harder for us to understand the whole of the Bible. That's like going into a movie or watching a show and you miss the beginning. That first five, ten minutes, me and Shannon, we joke around, we'll watch something on TV and she doesn't seem to really care, right? If I come in there and I miss, I was like, what happened? No, you got to go back in the beginning. Especially with one of those cop shows, right? I need to know what happened so I can understand the story. So the beginning is so foundational. And when things are established in Scripture, we learn of something at one point. We cannot depart from that. This is what it means when we say Scripture interprets Scripture. This is true at any point in Scripture. If we believe in progressive revelation, pastor preached about that, I don't know, maybe it was months or years ago, I don't even know when we talked about that, when he said it's not progressive, but we believe in progressive revelation, that he's constantly revealing more and more of himself from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So when God gives more light on something later in Scripture concerning something prior, that is now binding and without error. And unless or until he positively changes it in subsequent parts of Scripture, what he says is it. That is what the interpretation is. And perhaps this is most clear when the New Testament speaks of the mysteries that have been revealed in Christ in the New Testament. Things that were written down but maybe were unclear in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they are made much clearer. And the New Testament tells us something about something in the Old Testament. That is it. We can be sure that that is the true interpretation, whether they understood it or not, in the Old Testament. So I hope some of those things might be a little helpful as we come in. Maybe it's not. If it's not, well, I guess we'll have to talk later. But it's certainly helpful for me. So let's look at this. I want to just, like I I want to just go through the text and see what it says. Verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you... Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. The first thing, as I was reading, that stood out to me was the word Sabbaths is plural. And that could be a little bit confusing because at times the plural form is referring to the unique or sporadic special Sabbaths, the feasts or certain holy days that were unique to Israel that had to do with the ceremonial law. But here, he's actually speaking of the 52 weekly Sabbaths that come throughout the year. And, it's, and this, as we read the text, you're gonna make the, it makes it very clear. And he says that this is a sign between God and at that time, his covenant people, Israel, throughout their generations. And this sign proved that they were set apart, just like us as the church, they were set apart from the rest of the world that was around them. Now, one might say in this context that the Sabbath must only be for Israel. And that may be so, but as of now, I don't think that to be the case. I may be wrong, I don't think that's to be the case. Like it was during the days of Noah, And even in the days prior to Noah, mankind has been depraved. 
and very, very, very far from God, with the exception of God's remnant, which has always existed. Mankind has been a train wreck since the fall. We see that very clearly, especially in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So I believe that this was, yes, a sign for Israel being different from the rest of the sinful world at this time as a special people who worship God. Because the rest of the world, including them at one point, did not worship God. And because of the fall, people do not worship God unless he steps in. Unless he steps in. And he clearly stepped in in regards to the nation of Israel. They were no different than the other nations. So this was a sign, again, that they were unlike the rest of the earth because the Lord himself had set them apart for his own use. Again, very similar to us as the church. But I believe that even though it was a sign for them, it didn't mean that it wasn't something required for all the world, hence going back to creation. And I say this because the creation account and because of Romans chapter 2, which reminds us that God's law is written on the hearts of every single human being. And because of what the New Testament teaches us, that law can only be what we call the moral law, which is summed up in the greatest two commandments, which sums up the Ten Commandments. We can't say that a Gentile is going to be judged that Judgment Day who does not believe for not keeping the feasts. It wasn't for them. But they will be judged based on them breaking a law that was clearly written in their hearts through the conscience. So here in this context, this was a sign for Israel being different from the rest of the world. Verse 14 says, Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath for it is holy. If you notice, there's a lot of repetition here. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, <coughs> that person shall be cut off from among his people. So we see here that they were to observe, or some of your translations might say, keep the Sabbath. And this is really where the Hebrew word is going to be very helpful. And almost really just solidified what jumped out of me right from the beginning. It's the word shamar in Hebrew. And it carries the idea of guarding and protecting. That's the meaning behind the word. And that really brought this text to light for me. So God is saying to the nation of Israel that I am ordering you to guard and protect this day because it is my day, and it is for you. It's almost kind of like stewardship, and not just any, but being a good steward. And the reminder is, it is kodesh, the word, holy to you. This day is holy to you. So again, God is saying, guard and protect that which I have so graciously given to you, that which is good. Everything that God gives is good. That which is loving. That which is helpful. Because you are no longer common. And because you are subject to my special treatment. 
And God is saying, if you will not treasure this by working, and the word for working is melaka, and it refers to occupational work in particular, you must be destroyed and removed my covenant. Such strong language. Verse 16. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. Now here is an interesting verse because of the phrase Sabbath of complete rest. Sabbath means rest, so he's saying it twice. And sometimes, you know, the English translation might say something like that to, to, to explain maybe the word, but in the Hebrew it actually is saying it twice. It reads Sabbath of Sabbaths in the Hebrew. And when we use phrases such as this, it is usually for emphasis, namely telling us the superiority of the noun of nouns or the importance or greatness of the noun of nouns. Matthew Poole gives some helpful insight to this. He says, the Sabbath of rest, Hebrew Sabbath of Sabbaths or Sabbaths, i.e. the great and chief Sabbath, as the Song of Songs is the most excellent song, or the Holy of Holies is the most holy, and etc. The Jews had many Sabbaths or days of rest, but this is here preferred before them all. By this emphatical repetition of the same word and by this argument, the foregoing duty is pressed upon them. So this weekly Sabbath, he is saying, was most holy to follow. As mankind was created to worship, in which we know they failed, so now was the nation of Israel set apart to worship the living God, in which nobody really did. Verse 16, so the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. So here again we have repetition. And repetition is always there to stress the importance of something. So some may wonder about the word refreshed. At least that's what my translation, but I think actually most of the translations say and was refreshed. The Hebrew word is nefash, which means to breathe or to recover. That's not really very helpful either because we know God doesn't breathe or need recovery, so there must be meaning behind us. And I think the most satisfactory answer to this, again, is found in Matthew Fool, the great reformer. I think he's a great commentator. He says, but it notes the pleasure or delight God took in reflecting upon his works, beholding that everything he had made was good. And that definitely, I'm satisfied with that answer. We know when he created, yeah, he ceased from his labors. He didn't actually rest. He wasn't tiresome. He was done creating and he took it all in and it was good. He was enjoying what he created. He was satisfied, we can say, with all that he had done. And then verse 18, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, 
tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And we know that those two tablets of stone consisted of the Ten Commandments, that which included the Sabbath commandment, that which was clearly given the preeminence above the ceremonial law and the civil laws, which is why I believe making a distinction between the three divisions of the law is actually very important because the Bible itself makes a distinction between them. Again, we must remember that the moral law of God will be the standard of judgment by which all humanity will be judged. So if one is under the covenant of works, it means that they do not believe and they will stand before God based on their own merits. Not good. Now I mentioned in the beginning that something stood out very clearly as I was looking at this. I kept on reading it, and as I was reading it, before I looked at any kind of commentary or any of the original language, something stood out. And essentially, it can be summed up in the words, blessing or gift. As I was reading over this passage and other passages on the same topic, I kept on seeing the reality that this command, like all the others I might add, is actually a blessing and gift from God to his people. There is a phrase in three of these verses that I believe will help us see this. In verse 13, in verse 14, and in verse 16. So I'm just going to read those verses. They should pop up on the screen. Exodus chapter 31, I'm going to read verse 13, and I'm pretty sure you're going to see it stand out to you. But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Then again in verse 14, Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. And then we jump to verse 16. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. And I believe these verses gives us great perspective. The phrase I want to call to attention is where it says, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths. I had just mentioned that the Hebrew word for observe or keep is Shamar, and it means to guard and protect. And that really was important to me, to guard and protect. And it's reiterated three times in this short passage of Scripture. And if we just think for a moment about something that is guarded and protected, usually something that is guarded or protected is something that is very valuable or precious to us, right? Something that is guarded or protected is often treasured and prized very, very highly. Now, if we take it in the immediate context with the nation of Israel and the text that we are in, let's look at what's being said. Well, we already said that the rest of the world, which actually included them as well, were lawless. And they did not worship God. This is the effects of sin. They certainly didn't honor and keep Holy, the Sabbath that was 
that was instituted at creation, and they certainly did not worship the one true God. They were where they were at this point, the nation of Israel, in time, because God first loved them, in spite of them not loving him, just like the rest of the nations. And he made a distinction between them and the Egyptians. And he would continue to make a distinction between them and the rest of the Gentile nations. And we're going to see that as we continue to go through the scriptures. He gave them a law which actually already existed. But they gave them a law written down very clearly on stone tablets. He gave them something that was tangible or concrete that they can behold with no room for doubt right it was very clear they even said all that the lord says we will do they had a complete understanding that's a good thing but now they're in a place of real accountability so this law was clearly understood and this law was the heart of the one true god and he wants us to live in accordance to that law it was good on all levels and the application of it was good for all people. Loving God and loving people is always a very, very good thing. And this particular command was a great way for them to show their appreciation of this wonderful, amazing God who really made them a nation, set them apart as unique from the rest of the world. The God that they, just like the rest of the world, really had forsaken. And with all the difficulties of this world and being products of the fall and with their sin nature, it becomes difficult and exhausting living for the one true God. I think we all can kind of experience that, right? It's tough living the Christian life. It's tough living the Christian life in a really, really sinful world. But here, God is giving them a day of solemn rest from their labors. He has given them a day to wholly devote to him and reflect on his goodness and his majesty and reflect on how they were once not a people, just as we were, as Pastor talked about Corinthians today, and such were some of you, all those bad things he said, that they can reflect on his goodness in spite of their badness, you can say. And the question is, would they hold it as precious? Or would they trample underfoot that which was given to them for their benefit? This was a wonderful, precious gift from God. And whether we agree with it or not, Sunday is the closest thing we have that resembles a Sabbath. I'm not saying it is. Maybe it is. But it's clearly the closest thing that resembles the Sabbath of the Old Testament. Now maybe this message is more for those who are watching it on the computer because we have a pretty regular crowd here on Sunday evenings. Or maybe this is an encouragement for you guys in the pew to continue to hold this day very highly for his glory and truly make it a day that is set apart not just an hour or two, that this is a special day that we worship the Lord together as his people. This is a gift from God for us. Whatever the case, what I want us to see 
is that reserving this day as a day set aside for him is one of the great blessings that God has given his people. And I do believe, and I'm thankful that I'm preaching to the choir right now. But I'm also going to say that it's a moral obligation as his people. Again, very few verses, and then I'll close. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And guess what? We cannot do that if we don't come together. And the reality is we can't do it every day because we have lives to live, right? So scripture, we have an obligation to not neglect and forsake coming together as a body of Christ. James 1.17, I said that the Sabbath is a gift of God, and it was. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect give is from ab- gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. All gifts from God. And really, if you think about what stood out to me in this message, it's actually very, very simple. What you do with it is what you do with it. But all gifts from God are to be embraced. And we are to be good stewards of all that he gives us. And I don't know about you, but for me, certainly in my own life right now, Rest is a gift from God. I cherish time that I can rest. Time set apart to pray and be in his word as an individual and corporately is fuel that I need to function in this world. And like all gifts from the Lord, I will make a point to not neglect that which is precious from the Lord. And like all gifts from the Lord, they are for the building up of the body and for the glory of the king. So like Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.14 to not neglect the gift that was given to him, so ought we aim to not neglect any gift that the Lord has given us, and especially his gift of rest for the purpose of undistracted worship. You know, we worship God every day. We should. I get up in the morning. I start my day reading, studying, prayer, Studying with my wife, it's a wonderful thing. Certain days out of the week, we have family worship in our house. And that's a blessing. But there's a lot of distractions during the rest of those weeks. But this is a day is a lot less distractions. There's still some distractions because we have human sin, let's be honest. So let's not neglect this wonderful gift. You know, simply say, choose for yourselves who you will serve. And I will end there. Let's pray. Lord, I I hope I made sense. I trust in your spirit doing his job. Lord God, uh, I thank you for all your commandments. It lets us know who you are, lets you know how your godly rule is especially among your people. And it helps us really to see how loving you are. It also reminds us, Lord God, that we can't even obey these commandments. And because your standards are so high and because you are perfect, 
sin, the penalty for sin is death. But I'm so thankful, Lord God, that your son obeyed all this perfectly in our stead. And we reap all the benefits of what we did not do and what we did not earn. And we will be with you forever and ever and ever one day. And that forever and ever and ever has already started. So Lord, help us to serve you better. Help us to honor you more. Help us to be repentant when we sin. Help us to not neglect ever coming together as a body. And help us to accept those opportunities that you grant us rest when we need it. Because that is a precious gift from you. So do, Lord, what only you can do with your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mike. Um, Whatever day you choose to call your Sabbath, whether it be Saturday or Sunday or whatever, Jesus is the Sabbath of us all and that we should have rest in him. And the only reason we should have rest in him is because he's the creator and sustainer of the world and also because Jesus paid it all. So let's open up our hymnals to 305. We're going to sing all four verses. If you could please stand with me. Three oh five. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all and all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Verse 3. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Amen. Be blessed.